The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Uh, today's, thanks. today's scripture reading is going to be from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. You can follow along in the Bibles under your chairs or also on the screen. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This has been God's word. I, I uh, read an article this morning uh, about a man in Brazil. And this man claims that in a hotel room in 1979, that he heard a voice in his head, which is never a good start, generally. He heard a voice in his head that said, you are Jesus Christ reincarnate. And so he went out the next day and changed his name. And for the last, what, 38 years, he's been preaching and teaching people He was sleeping in a van, preaching and teaching people that he was Jesus Christ reincarnate. And and now he lives on a compound in Brazil, uh, surrounded by fence and barbed wire, with 12 disciples. Uh, Forget it's like nine women and three men, or nine men and three women, who serve him and worship him and listen to him daily teach. He's gotten older now, and so he doesn't get around very well. He rides around on a little motorized cart around his little compound. And he gets the word out that he's Jesus through Facebook and YouTube. Uh, he takes the, the, when the Bible says that Jesus is going to come back in the clouds of glory, to say that that's why he travels by airplane to get where he needs to go. He... He's a man who I've never heard of before this morning, and most likely you've never heard of before this morning. He's a little crazy guy, because spoiler alert, he's not Jesus. He's a little crazy guy in a compound in Brazil with 12 people in this lush garden surrounded by fence and barbed wire who has some followers on YouTube and Facebook, because you can find crazies anywhere, and is not making much difference in the world or even in Brazil or they had a picture of him standing on beside his van outside the Congress of Brazil preaching to no one as they were walking by. And I think a lot of us though have that kind of picture about what Christianity is. 
a lot of the world thinks that's kind of what Christianity is. Like, there was a man whose name was Jesus, and he lived and he died, and his, he said he was God, or his followers said he was God, and he died, and then afterwards, they said that he rose again, and Christianity has done some good things for the world, has also done a lot of bad things, and it's okay if it's for you, but it's, Christianity isn't, it's sort of sequestered a, 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 to the side, apart from the rest of like the real work in society, the real business of life. It's a, sort of separate from the real things in life. But what we're seeing in the book of Acts, as we're working in our series today, we're in chapter four. What we're seeing in the book of Acts is that once Jesus died, buried, and was resurrected, it set in a series of events that absolutely changed the world. It changed the world then and it continues to change the world now. A powerful energy or power was released in Jerusalem after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the likes of which the world has not seen since then. a reconstructive power that the world has never seen before or since. From the day of Pentecost, when the, Jesus told the disciples to wait in the upper room after, after he had risen from the dead and he ascended to the Father, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift or the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And after that day, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, thousands of people who had once called for Jesus' death now turned around and called him Lord. Think about that. Thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem who had once heard Jesus and seen Jesus and had considered him an interesting guy or a fraud and had ended up calling for his death or being okay with his crucifixion turned around and weeks later professed him to to be the son of God and to be their personal Lord and their personal Savior. And not only that, but we see those people, those thousands of people in Jerusalem where it began who called him their personal Lord and Savior, they experienced a change of their whole life. Everything in their life totally changed. And we see it in this passage, it's very apparent. There's the background of what's happened before this. You have Pentecost, and then after Pentecost, you have John and Peter, who are two of the apostles, and they're on their way to the temple one day, and they see a man who's been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old, and he begs them, hey, give me some money. And they say, we don't have any money, but we, here's what we do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He gets up and walks. People around freak out. A crowd is gathered. Jesus and John proclaim the gospel to the people thousands more people become Christians Peter and John are then arrested put into jail overnight the next day they appear before the Sanhedrin which is the uh, governing uh, court in in Jerusalem for the, the Jews they appear before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, warns them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They leave. They meet with the church. They say, hey, this is what happened. They say, hey, we need some help. They pray to God. And then at the end of the passage last week, we see the building that they were in was shaken. And they were filled afresh or new with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And now we see what is the result of that presence and power, that fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that it sounds a lot like the evidence of the first time when they were first baptized or born again by the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. 
Let's read through the passage again. I know uh, she just read it for us, Madeline did, but let's read through it again just so it's fresh in our minds. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, which by the way, I don't have time to get into that today, but wouldn't it be cool to have people give you the nickname, the son of encouragement? That you were such an encouragement to the people around you, to the other believers, that, that that's the nickname that you got? A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is really interesting to me. The apostles, the disciples, the whole church, when they come back to them after being threatened by the Sanhedrin, they pray. And what they do in this prayer is they ask God to show off. They ask God to flex, to show off his power and his glory to the people who are around them. And he responds, the gospel is proclaimed. We saw in the passage last week, miracles are performed by the apostles. But here's also what happens we see in this passage that you can't read without it standing out. There was not a needy person among them. Let's stand out to you, read it. They had all things in common. No one called anything his own. And there was not a needy person among them. We're going to see today that radical generosity is a sure and definite sign of God's power in and among his people. Radical generosity is a sure sign of God's presence and his power among his people. And we're going to see that that comes, we're going to see that that, come, that new power among the people comes from a radical new economy. We're going to see the origin of this economy. And we're going to see a freedom, not a command. We're going to see a radical new economy, the origin of this economy, and then a freedom, not a command. Now, when we read this passage, it's hard for this radical generosity not to stand out. All those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Now, before you get to any personal objections that you might have or wondering how does this play out in our life or in our day, we just need to stop and first of all just see like, isn't this a beautiful picture of what life could and should be like? Like beyond your personal objections about how this plays out and politically and economically how this works isn't first of all when we read this passage doesn't some part of your heart say man I wish it could be this way 
Isn't there something beautiful when you see this? Like, wouldn't it be amazing for the people who call Jesus Christ as Lord and say that they're a family, wouldn't it be amazing if there was not a needy person among us? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Doesn't some part of your heart say, man, I don't know how that happens, but I wish that were true? But then probably what happens after you have that sort of feeling, that sort of thought, is then you start thinking about, all right, how does this work? How does this play out in everyday life? Politically and economically, what does this look like? Because let's just be totally honest with each other this morning. You don't have to put your cards or your voting record on the table today, but depending on how you vote and how you lean and how you follow in the political discourse in America, you probably read this passage and you might have different sort of reactions. You might, first of all, read this passage and say, whoa, whoa, this sounds a lot like socialism or communism. They had all things in common. No one called anything that was theirs their own. They sold it all and they shared it. You can say, either that sounds like communism or socialism or it sounds like a weird cult. And you're going to end up in Brazil surrounded by a fence and barbed wire. And some of us read this and, 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 and we like, this, <laughs> this sounds really appealing we're really excited. We love the idea politically of people like those who have more giving more and those who have less get more in return, right? Like go Bernie or, you know, whatever your kind of political, let's just be honest. Like, we're thinking these things as we read this. How does this play out? Some of us say, hey, I, I'm not sure about this whole socialistic thing. I'm all about the free market, capitalism, uh, America, red, white, and blue, like shooting guns and like the whole deal. Like, hey, give it to you. Like, this is, this is America. This is not the way we play it here. But no matter what political system that you kind of tend to gravitate to, no matter what side of the political spectrum you tend to gravitate to, you might be deep red or deep blue or some purplish thing in the middle, wherever you fall, and no matter who you've cast your vote for this past year. Here's the truth. Every political and economic system that the world has tried, and I personally, I think, and I would love to have a discussion separately to talk about benefits of different sorts of economic systems and political systems, but every political and economic system that the world has tried has always failed. There might be some that are better than others, but every single political system that we've tried has failed. Socialism has been tried and failed. Capitalism doesn't always work out the way free market capitalists say it does. Democracy, oligarchies, like whatever kind of place that you fall to it, they all fail. And here's why they all fail. Because they're all include and are run by human beings. The problem with the world isn't that we're too Republican or too Democrat or too, Repub or too conservative or too liberal or too free market or too socialist. The problem with the world is that we as mankind are broken. And we will abuse whatever system that we can find. 
Because you put one or few people in charge of an economy or in charge of a country, they're going to end up over time at some point abusing their power. And if we run a free market capitalistic system, uh, as much as we like to think that the market corrects itself and always takes care of things, the truth is free market capitalism, the businesses and the government is still run by human beings who at our very base core are corrupt. And that's the reason that the systems that we run are corrupt. Because we're corrupt. When everything's flat and we all share everything in common, socialism or communism, there might not be any incentive for the heart for people to work hard and for there to be ingenuity. People may become complacent. But also, in a capitalistic economy, the powerful will still take advantage of the weak. And the rich will still take advantage of the poor. The rich and powerful will always take advantage of their position eventually. And the poor and weak will take advantage of their position eventually, no matter what system you're in, because we are broken. We're selfish at the very basic core of who we are. The real issue isn't economic or political objections we may have to how this works out. The real issue that this passage is dealing with is our own personal objections. It's our own personal selfishness. It's our own personal pride and greed and selfishness that when we read this passage, we think, I, as beautiful as that may be for somebody to be a part of, when it comes to me being a part of that, I don't want anything to play with it. Because I don't want anybody to see how I do or do not spend my money or where I put my savings or what I do with my time. I don't want to have anybody have any sort of claim on my time or possessions or money other than me. Because I own them. They are mine. God gave them to me or I earned them with my own ability or skill. And nobody has the right to tell me what to do with it. But what we see here in this passage is a totally different system than the world had ever seen. It wasn't capitalism. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't socialism. We see people moved out of their own heart in a voluntary way who have more. We see them moved to take care of the ones who don't have Nobody commanded them to give up anything. We see people move from their heart without anybody coercing them or commanding them or even suggesting it. Those who have more, they give up what they don't need so that people who do have needs will have none any longer. It was completely voluntary and not coerced. And then we see it also crossed natural friendship lines and natural social status lines. Here's what's interesting in the passage is that the wording that Luke uses to describe how they shared all things in common and there was no needy among them is actually a picture of the Greek ideal of friendship. That when you have a circle of friends together, that those circle of friends take care of each other and there's no needy people among that circle of friends. But 
the Greeks believed that that could only happen among people who were friends, and that and the people could only be friends if they were of the same social status and economic status. That you couldn't be friends with people who are at a different level, either above or below you, socially or economically, because you didn't have enough in common to be friends. So among the poor people who are friends together should share what they have, and the rich people who are together should share what they have together, but you couldn't cross those two ever. But this picture is a radically different idea. Because what we see in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church at the very beginning, is that there are those people who are rich, those are people who are poor. Those people who are rich who had inherited it, and there are those people who are rich who had earned it. Those people who are poor, who are poor because, uh, because they were born poor and they had no ability to work their way out of it. And there are people who are poor who had, who had made mistakes and put themselves in a bad situation. And yet, among these people, rich and poor, people who had made good decisions economically, people who had made poor decisions economically, whenever they met Jesus and they discovered grace and a new identity in him, all of a sudden, it broke down the barriers between them. And we see them mixing together, not only mixing together and being polite and nice to each other, but actually bonding together so that those who have said to those who don't have, let me help you. It was a radically new kind of economy, a radically, new, a radically new way to think about money and possessions and time. But how did this start among them? Well, the origin of this new economy is, first of all, we've got to look at the way they thought about power and economics before this time. Before this time, or even up till now, most of the world has known two forms of government and two forms of economy. There's the aristocracy, and that's where those who, you, those who have get more, or you get according to your family position and connections. If you happen to be born into a wealthy, powerful, well-connected family, then you're going to be fine. But if you aren't, that's just your lot in life, and you're going to continue. Then there came a new idea of economics, and that was called a, a meritocracy. And that was said, that's when people said, you get according to your ability and your effort, or you get what you deserve. And that's what we trumpet about the American economy, right? And by the way, I do think it's probably better than some other forms of economy, but again, it's not perfect. But in a meritocracy, which is what we live in, to the extreme, it says you get what you have the ability to get and you get what you have the effort to procure. You get what you deserve. But what we see here is a totally different way of thinking. I call it the economy of grace. And that is the economy of grace is based on you get what you need when you don't deserve it and you give because you don't deserve it. You get what you need even though you don't deserve it and you give because you didn't deserve what you got. We see how this new way of thinking and living began with them. Notice when it says in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
great grace was upon them all. These people, these people in the early church, they understood grace and they had experienced grace. And when you understand it and experience it, it changes your life. You understand grace. Do you understand grace? Grace is this. It's the story of the gospel. It's that you and I, apart from God, were totally broken. We were sinners. We were stuck in our own mess. We could not turn to God and we would not if we could have. We had no desire or no drive and no ability to turn ourselves back to him. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ came to those who did not deserve it. If you're a Christian today, you, don't, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You did nothing in order to endear yourself to him. He looked upon you with total grace and mercy when you had nothing coming to you. And he gave you what you could not have earned in any possible way. Do you understand that? Do you really understand that? Jesus told a story about a man who owed the king like $20 million. And he couldn't pay it back. And what was going to happen is he and his family and all his possessions and household were going to be sold until the debt could be paid off. And if there wasn't enough there to pay off the debt, he would still be sold into slavery. And yet he came to the king and he begged for mercy. The king gave him mercy. He gave him grace. Not only did he say, hey, I'll give you more time to repay me. He said, you don't have to repay me at all. I totally cancel the debt that you, that you owe. And then later on, one of the king's servants saw the man. And he had met a man who owed him like 20, 50 bucks. And he was threatening the man who owed him 20, 50 bucks. That he was going to put his family in prison if he couldn't pay up. And the king said, you forgot the mercy and the grace that I've shown you. I'm selling you and your family into slavery. Selling all your possessions. But don't you and I, like, if you and I, we forget grace because we do not understand just how little, how zero we deserved it and how much he gave us and gives us consistently and constantly to us. Do you understand grace? The apostles had shown with great power, giving the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The fact that Jesus came and died and resurrected is the proof that you and I have been given grace that we did not deserve. Do you understand that? Do we understand that? But the people who heard it didn't just understand it with their head. They experienced that grace. They tasted of that grace. That's what happens when you're born again and the Holy Spirit comes and fills you and dwells within you. He gives you a taste, a, a sense, a, a, it's hard to explain, a, a sense of reality that you can't explain through any sort of exterior Circumstances just inside you know you experience the grace and goodness of God to you. And when you understand it with your mind and you experience with your heart, you taste it and sense it. You taste and see the Lord is good. You experience his grace at your core. You tangibly taste it. Whenever you do that, it changes the way that you think about life. 
Because you have been given what you did not deserve. And you are constantly be given fresh grace every single moment of every single day. And you have, if you're a believer, you have an eternity of receiving and experiencing that grace, the riches of God, your new father lavished upon you for eternity. And all of a sudden, your time and your possessions and your money doesn't seem to quite have the same hold that it used to have over you. If somebody comes to me and they need something from me, I'm not keeping track of it anymore. That's what most of us do. We have this sort of unwritten social contract with each other that if you ask me to do something for you, I do it for you, and then you know that you owe me a favor back in return, and we all keep this sort of score back and forth with how many notches we owe each other. But when you experience grace and you realize how much you've been given when you did not deserve, then you're not keeping score any longer. You're not keeping score with your spouse or your friends or your parents or your kids or your coworkers or your neighbors. You've been given great grace that you cannot imagine. So why would I keep score about it anymore? When you experience that sort of grace, it creates a brand new kind of unity amongst the body of Christ. Because the rich have discovered that they are spiritually poor apart from Christ. The rich and the powerful are brought down. They say, apart from Christ, you are nothing. What you have earned, what you were born with, your good looks, your name, your wealth, your power, your talents, everything that you have is nothing apart from relationship with Christ. You're brought down. But those who are poor have discovered they are spiritually rich. And what does that do? It puts us on the same level. It raises the poor and the weak. And it lowers the powerful and the rich. So that we can look in each other's eyes and know that we are the same people. It's the secret to inside why inside the church there should be why we should celebrate diversity and colors and backgrounds and socioeconomic status it's why there should be though we, should, we celebrate that difference it says the inside there should be there should be it should be zero separating us from each other the secret for racial and social and economic reconciliation in our country and the world is for us to discover that the rich and powerful are spiritually poor and the poor are spiritually rich in Christ. That creates a deep sense of unity. That's what we see in this passage when it says, everyone, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And that's what led to them saying that no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. That's because when that grace creates unity, and that unity creates affection for each other. I say affection, not just love, because let's just be honest. The word love is misused, and we apply all sorts of things to it. I, I love cheesecake, and I love my wife. Both of those things are true, but it's not the same. And so I say, like, they love each other. We're supposed to love each other. And we all picture different things in here. But when I say affection, like, you know that, that a, a fond, a fondness, a fond love for each other. A 
perfection. Grace creates unity, and unity creates a deep affection for each other. Whenever it puts us on the same plane, and we actually are able to look at each other without trying to, if I'm, if I'm poor or not as smart or a little bit weaker, and like, I, it raises me up and I can look at you and not try to pretend about who I am. And those who have more can, are no longer looking to what they have to give them their sense of identity and value. They don't have to flaunt it and parade it. They can be real with each other. It gives us a chance to actually get to know each other and it creates a deep affection for each other. And that affection creates generosity. The picture we have here is not of a, an organization, but it's of a family. I call my, my possessions might be my own, but if my kids or my wife ever have needs, it doesn't matter, like it's gonna, it's gonna go to them. If my sisters or mom got in trouble, like my money, my time, my possessions, my resources are gonna go to their need. They have a claim upon it because they're family. And whenever a a familial, a family-like affection is stirred in our souls, it creates a deep generosity. And then by the way, we don't have time to get into it today, but that generosity among believers creates a deep goodwill to the people outside the church. Because they see a different kind of economy, a different type of lifestyle inside the church that is inexplicable apart from a new birth. They may not believe it or even understand it, but they acknowledge it to be real and true. And it creates goodwill with the people around us. We see the radical new economy, the origin of this economy. And then lastly, we see a freedom, not a command. A freedom, not a command. Uh, God's covenant, the old covenant to the people of Israel, held this type of society, this type of economy that we see as the goal. In Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5, it says, But there will be no poor among you. Doesn't that sound a lot like the passage we're reading? But there will be no poor among you, for, this is why there'll be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandment that I command you today. That was the promise. That was the command that he gave them. There there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you. But the promise could not be provided through the commands that were given. There are always poor among them. But the deeper promise was that he was going to eventually give them a new heart. He was going to give a new heart to both the rich and the poor. See here, Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of the children after them. When the disciples 
were born again on the day of Pentecost. And more and more people were added to the church that they were born again and continually living a life filled with the Holy Spirit that provided that new kind of heart that was needed in order to think and feel about their money and their time and their possessions differently. And that's what created a response that was totally voluntary on the part of each person. A totally voluntary response apart from any sort of command. And that's the beauty of this passage. There was no command that Jesus gave that said, hey, if you have extra possessions, sell them. Provide for the needy. It totally came from a heart that was moved with love, the love of God and the affection for the other believers apart from any sort of command. We think that we're free to do with our time and money and possessions, whatever you want to do with it, right? That's the way you and I tend to think about our time, our money, and our possessions. I'm free to do with whatever I want with those things. At least before Christ, we think that way. We think of them as ours. My money is mine. My time is mine. My possessions are mine. But we're mistaken. Because our time, our money, our possessions always exert control over us. We don't control them. We have very limited control over our time, our money, and our possessions. Something can happen in a moment and they can be gone. But even above that, when Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, is always true. Wherever your personal treasure is. Some of you have a bigger treasure, and some of you have a very tiny little treasure. But wherever that treasure is, don't you find that's where your heart is buried there too? You don't control it. It controls you. You act and do the way that you, you do the things that you do and you act the way that you act because your heart is with your treasure. But when Christ comes into our life and we experience grace and understand grace, then we are freed from the control. It frees us truly and deeply. It's that grace that finally gives us the ability to hold our money and hold our possessions and hold our time loosely and generously. The picture that we see here, the wording can be kind of confusing when it says uh, that It talks about uh, them, everyone, as many as uh, were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. The the wording there can be kind of confusing. The the wording there is actually not that every person sold their houses and lands and brought their money to the apostles' feet. We know that's not true because right after this we see people meeting in house to house. So people had houses. But the picture is... That first of all, that because of grace, nobody counted anything that they had as theirs. They counted it, they held it loosely so that anybody else in the family of God, as they had need, could use it. Do you hold your time loosely? 
so that anybody else has need of your time in the body of Christ and the family of Jesus, that they have a claim on your time? Do you hold your possessions and your money loosely so that if anyone around you has a need, then they also have a claim on your possessions and your money? And are we willing to take the intentional steps that are needed to move towards this type of radical generosity? That kind of radical, voluntary generosity is even bigger and runs even deeper than we first read the passage. Because we see that that applies to both the rich and the poor. I hold everything I have loosely, whether I have a lot or I have a little. So how do we get there? First of all, it's repentance. It's always repentance. It's repentance for you and I to see where have I laid treasure so that my heart is there? Where do I see my heart? Where do I see an unwillingness to open up my hands to the people around me who have needs? Whether it's my time or my money or my possessions. Where am I unwilling to open my hands? Where am I grasping tightly? That's where your heart is. And if our heart is anywhere apart from Jesus Christ, then we need to repent. I pray that we would receive grace today and understand that grace and experience in such a way that it would free us to allow us to repent deeply of where we have laid our treasure apart from him. Where do you need to better understand grace? The idea that what you have is not your own, that you had nothing that you deserved coming to you that that Jesus Christ gave you through the cross and through the new birth? Do you need to tangibly experience grace in your heart? Do you understand it with your head, but do you need to more tangibly experience it and taste it in your heart? And then ask this question, what practical and intentional steps do I need to make to move towards radical generosity? What practical and intentional steps? Because look, radical generosity that we're reading about here is motivated by love. It's fueled by grace, but you only get to participate in it intentionally. What Intentional and practical steps do I need to make to move towards radical generosity? Many of us can't even begin to think about being radically generous because we are too strapped financially to even get there. And many of us are too busy to even see the needs around us. Maybe the first thing that we need to do is start to move in a direction financially so that I can be able to be radically generous with people around me. Maybe you need to get to a place where you're not so busy that you can't even be around other people and see the needs that they have or take the time to help them. The place that this grace and unity and affection is stirred here at Doxa happens on Sundays, but it only happens partially here on Sundays. 
the, the place where we get to be around other believers and see the the rich and the powerful and the older come down and the those who are younger and weaker and poorer come up in Christ and we see each other eye to eye and get to know each other and have a deep affection for each other. The place that, that happens is in community groups. So we meet in each other's homes and we share a meal together and look in each other's eyes and talk about our lives and get to know each other. And that's a place where deep affection can really be stirred and built and deep generosity can actually happen very naturally. Our community groups start back next month, and if I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a community group, if you haven't been a part of one till now, see somebody at the connect table before you leave and join a community group. By God's grace, we here who are in this room, we can exhibit this kind of radical generosity that we see the early church exhibit by understanding and experiencing God's grace and being intentional in the way that we show generosity to each other, stirring that deep affection in each other's soul. And by doing so, we can be a part of proving to the people around us the reality and the beauty that's found in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.